Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Charlotte Bismuth will join us to discuss bad medicine. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the opioid epidemic continues to have long-lasting repercussions in society. The number of individuals involved span everything from big pharmaceutical companies to unscrupulous doctors prescribing those medications. Joining us today to discuss one such individual is Ms. Charlotte Bismuth. Ms. Bismuth joined the New York County District Attorney's Office in 2008 as an appellate attorney, and in 2010 transferred into the Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor. She's a graduate of Columbia University's Law School and has the new book recounting her trial of Dr. Stan Lee, one of New York's deadliest pill pushers. The new book is entitled Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. Ms. Bismuth, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, and this is a fascinating recounting of your trial of Dr. Stan Lee, who uh, was an individual involved in running a clinic where he would prescribe a number of these opioids. Why was this one different for you? And why did you decide then to recount this in book here? Well, this one was actually unprecedented in the sense that the scope of his operation was so broad. It was just a one-day-a-week basement clinic in Flushing, Queens, but 16 of his patients died of overdoses, and those are the ones that we were able to identify because they were directly linked to him. I don't know how many patients shared their pills, sold their pills, shared their prescriptions, and possibly were a link in the chain to other deaths. We had never seen anything like it. Dr. Lee saw anywhere from 70 patients to up to 100 patients a day. He didn't give appointments, only numbered tickets. He made nearly half a million dollars in cash over just two and a half years. So the case in itself lent to a lot of disbelief. And I wanted to write about that case, even though it was 2010 to 2014, because I think there were many lessons in there about what it takes to reach justice, the teamwork that it takes, the messiness of it all, and also the importance of fighting for closure and fighting for accountability for those who had suffered so much and who really had never otherwise would have known what happened to their loved one. But also, as you say, the opioid epidemic rages on. We've seen so much pain, so much greed. There's so little justice. And I wanted to tell a story of hope But I also, again, wanted to tell the truth about what it's like to prosecute a case, what it's like to struggle with perfectionism when, you know, you're waking up every morning and just hoping that you won't hear about another death, and just the challenges of daily life when the stakes are so high in the work. How did law enforcement, how did state become aware of Dr. Lee's operation? That's actually one of the most fascinating parts of it. A patient came forward, a young man who actually suffered from an incredibly debilitating and painful condition, who'd been looking for a legitimate doctor to help him with his pain. 
was referred to Dr. Lee. And instead, he found a doctor who tried to extort money out of him despite his Medicare eligibility, who was not interested in medical records and was really just interested in getting him in and out and selling him prescriptions. This young man actually overdosed on one of Dr. Lee's prescriptions for Xanax, and he didn't want anybody else to get hurt, so he called the police. Interestingly, the police didn't know what to do with the complaint because the complaint was about a doctor selling prescriptions, and doctors write prescriptions. That's what they do. So they referred the case to us, and we began asking questions. What was it like then, uh, trying to investigate the case, build the case, uh, find the evidence of, of what was going on? It was harrowing. It was confusing. It was exhausting because we had I known at the very beginning what that complaint was about to bring, I don't know that I would have had the fortitude to do what we did. It was really every day a different part of the case opened up. We discovered a new victim. We had set up an overdose alert system with the office of the chief medical examiner where we received from them a list of all the decedents, the overdose decedents, over the course of a month, and we cross-referenced it with Dr. Lee's patient list. And again, to have that ding 16 times just creates this incredible sense of stress and pressure. There was also an instance where a patient of Dr. Lee's committed a horrific murder because he had become so addicted to the pills that he decided to rob a pharmacy. So the stakes were so high. Our team was just trying to wrap its arms around the financial aspects of the case. There was a lot of insurance fraud involved. Following the money, there were a number of different bank accounts that we had to uncover, tracking down patients, trying to convince them to speak to us. And there was actually also, interestingly, um, running into a lot of stigma about people who were suffering from opioid use disorder who the system was used to treating as defendants. And here, not only they were the victims, but they were the incredibly necessary witnesses. And we needed the judge and the jury to see them that way. How did you pass that hurdle in getting the legal system to hear their case and be sympathetic with it? We were very lucky in that most of them testified, actually almost all of them testified, not just voluntarily, but with conviction, because they all said that they didn't want anybody else to get hurt. Every single person whom we called to the stand had either lost a loved one, suffered an overdose themselves, or come very close to it. So they really understood why we needed to shut the clinic down and why Dr. Lee needed to be held accountable for his conduct. The way that we handled it in court was, as with every other witness, when they came in for their initial prep, we told them, we are not your attorneys, we represent the state, you need to tell the truth. That includes the truth about why you were going to see Dr. Lee, what you were trying to obtain. If you lied to him, you should tell that to the jury and explain why, and be as helpful to the defense attorney as you are to us. Now, I've never been on the witness stand, but I have to tell you, these were some of the bravest people I've ever seen, because they got up and they had to talk about a history of substance use disorder, in some cases, criminal histories, the fact that they had you know, lied to Dr. Lee about getting medication from other doctors or misusing what he was giving them. And the idea was that we needed to trust the jury. We knew that if we presented the jury, well, we didn't know, we hoped that if we presented the jury with credible, honest witnesses and with the trail of money, 
that they would understand that it was all about greed and they would understand that he actually had known that his patients were lying. And at that point, their baggage didn't really matter anymore because it was a judgment of his conduct. Were any other person besides a doctor, uh, someone selling drugs on the street, it would be sort of straightforward, but there's that credibility one gives to a doctor and says, well, they might have the patient's best interest. Absolutely. And that was the doctor's defense to, to a great extent. He also benefited from that trust, from his status as a gatekeeper for many years before he was caught. You know, one of our witnesses was an executive from a health insurance company, and he said to the jury, the system is based on trust. Physicians have a tremendous amount of discretion in selecting the medications they want to prescribe, and they also are granted a lot of credit by the agencies who work with them. So that was difficult. And Dr. Lee was a very, very well-credentialed physician. He had actually gone through the medical education twice, once in China, and then he came to the U.S. and was recertified, which takes a tremendous amount of effort and grit and intelligence to do. He obtained a fellowship from the University of Pittsburgh. He was board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. He was actually also employed as an anesthesiologist five days a week in a very well-respected hospital. So he really knew what he was doing. And with this side business, it wasn't medicine. It was a business, pretty much encapsulates the spirit of the practice. What was your sense then of Dr. Lee? Do you think he regretted what he had done or had he rationalized it in his own mind? So he actually testified in his own defense. And his claim, which goes back to your earlier question, was that he trusted the patients and the patients had lied to him, and that he was just trying to help them in their pain. I think that could have been believable had it not been for the financial evidence and also just for the sheer mass of patients who came through his office. It's very hard to consider people as humans and their pain as real and significant when you're seeing them just long enough to write out a prescription and pocket money. He did not express remorse during the trial. He did not express remorse at sentencing. I don't think we'll ever know what was going through his mind. And we didn't charge him with intentional homicide for two of the deaths. He was charged with manslaughter. The evidence was there. He was aware of a substantial risk. He consciously disregarded that risk. With respect to three other patients, he was charged with reckless endangerment based on depraved indifference to human life. Again, that evidence was there. We didn't ask the grand jury to indict him on any crimes of intentional harm. The issue was really elsewhere, and I, I don't think we'll ever know. Unfortunately, Dr. Lee, who was sentenced to serve a prison term, actually died of COVID in prison. It was obviously very sad for him and his family. I don't think it serves justice, and it also means that there are many questions to which we will never have answers. There Were there moments during that process where you worried about whether it would all come together? Moment, I thought... <laughs> every moment. I didn't know how it would come together. Again, you know, it was like wrapping our arms again around a planet. I mean, it was new dimensions of the case ap appeared every day. The one moment that I can think of that really felt like a breakthrough was when Joe Hall, my investigative partner, and I were going through search warrant materials from Dr. Lee's home. And we found a folder containing a few pages from patient medical records, and they didn't belong there. He kept all of his records at his office. It didn't seem like he had ever brought them home. But also they were original sheets, and there were just a couple of them. There were maybe 10 to 12 of them. So 
in that moment holding them, we decided that we should compare them to the medical charts that we had seized to the office. And we held them side by side and realized that he had altered the patient charts. And the patient charts that he had altered were the ones that had been requested by the state licensing board as part of their investigation into some of his patients. So in that moment, we had proof of consciousness of guilt. And that was a game changer because it meant that Dr. Lee not only had known that what he was doing was not medicine, that it was inappropriate and risky, but he tried to cover it up. And from that point, we were able to identify additional acts that he had undertaken to cover up his conduct, such as sending false records to the medical examiner in the case of one of his homicide victims. It changed everything. It also gave us, I think, a little bit more confidence knowing that this was something that a jury would understand. It was not a question of a nuanced, you know, whether this is a to poor practice of medicine versus, you know, a criminal endeavor. This was something that they would understand. Going in, hearing the verdict, were you confident? Was there some nervousness? How did you feel? <laughs> no, we were. So Dr. Lee was facing 211 counts. The verdict sheet was very, very long. And the jury had actually deliberated for a full week, starting from the end. And we knew that because they were asking for every piece of evidence that related to every charge, having it brought into the jury room and then sending it back out and moving on to the next set of charges. So we knew that they'd been very thoughtful. We knew they'd been very thorough. And over the course of that week, there was only so much that we could glean from their questions and their requests. But the verdict sheet was very long. Luckily, the two homicide counts and the three counts of reckless endangerment with depraved indifference were right at the top. So we knew that no matter what the future held, at least we would know one way or the other. And to be honest, this should be true in every case, that it's not about the conviction. It's about whether you've done the work right. It was particularly true in this case, because at that moment, looking around the courtroom, our entire team was there. And I knew that no matter what happened, we had done the work, we had done it right. We had presented the best case that we could present. Everybody who testified even if it hadn't been easy, was relieved and proud to have done so. And there was nothing else that we could have done. And at least the truth was out there, whether or not the jury would decide to convict. So that's how I managed the nervousness. But the, the moment when the foreman announced those counts was a very, very heavy moment. How did this case change your perspective on the pursuit of justice? For one thing, I had always been interested in white collar crime. So crimes that involved abuse of power, abuse of authority. And I believe that those exist in narcotics cases. The Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor focuses on cases that go up the chain. They actually can only prosecute felony cases. But still, there's a very significant universe of cases that are prosecuted where at least some of the parties involved are also suffering from substance use disorder. And I think the Lee case was a very, very significant lesson for me in what does it mean? How does it feel to be addicted? What is the pain associated with that? What is the ripple effect in, within a family and within a community of that? How should it be considered and treated by the judicial system? And ultimately, you know, I don't think that those cases should be prosecuted where the defendant suffers from substance use disorder. There are alternative programs, but it's also, if we believe addiction is a disease, which I think is universally acknowledged now, we have to treat it as such. 
and give deference to the medical community, the specialists in addiction and recovery on how to handle that rather than try to arrest our way out of it. The victims of Dr. Lee, did you get the sense that they felt satisfied by the convictions? Did they feel justice was served? They did. I'm still in touch with many of them. One of the homicide victims' mothers, whose name is Margaret Rappold, her son Nicholas died at the age of 21, just three days after seeing Dr. Lee. She had been living with tremendous guilt and pain, thinking that she had failed her son, that she hadn't realized what was going on, that she hadn't done everything she could to help him. So many other families and victims felt that way, that somehow they had failed. And again, even without the conviction, I think that the process had allowed them to realize that First of all, they were facing an opponent. They had not been aware of it. And second of all, they really had no chance against this doctor with his prescription pad. They, there was nothing they could have done. And that is obviously very sad and disconcerting, but I think it did offer them a little bit of relief. Whether the system worked, I, you know, I hope so. I think the system failed when it came to safeguarding Dr. Lee's health and safety in prison. And that is very hard to process. But also the system worked because everybody working on the case poured everything that they had into it. We were just talking with Ms. Charlotte Bismuth. She has penned the new book, Bad Medicine, New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. Ms. Bismuth, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.